Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First, he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Good evening, everyone. Mark, thank you very much for reading for us. To keep your Bibles open at that reading from Hebrews chapter 10, it's on page 1207 in the Pew Bibles. There's no handout tonight, but there's plenty of space in the back of the blue service sheet. If you're the kind of person who likes to scribble notes, then do use that if that's helpful. And uh, let me pray once again as we look together at this um, incredible passage from Hebrews 10. Our Father in heaven, we marvel tonight that through the death of Jesus Christ, we can stand before you without guilt. Please help us tonight to believe that and to live lives that are utterly transformed by that truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I came across an article on the BBC website a little while ago bemoaning how Christmas is advertised. It seems that again and again, Christmas is oversold. And so on all the adverts we see on TV, that uh, often Christmas is depicted as being uh, always uh, white with snow. Um, People always uh, get on well with their families. They're surrounded by lots of friends. They're smiling and happy. And of course, everyone likes their presents on Christmas Day. I've done some research. Uh, In fact, over the last 60 years in this country, depending on where you live, it's only snowed 10 times on Christmas Day itself, not every year. Um, In a recent survey, 68% of people expected to have an argument with someone else in their family on Christmas Day. On Christmas Day itself, it is estimated that 500,000 people in this country will not speak to another human being. They'll be utterly on their own on Christmas Day. 
And when it comes to presents, now I need to be careful here in case I mention a present you've just bought. I'll go for an older one. So some years ago, I was told the most popular present that year was the DVD of the first Mamma Mia musical. And then a month later, I was told that the most common donation to charity shops (laughs) was, as you guessed it, the DVD of Mamma Mia. I could go on, you get the point. There is often a huge discrepancy between the picture painted for us by the adverts around Christmas and the reality itself. And so it's not surprising that around about 4 p.m. on Christmas afternoon, many of us will begin to wonder if, in fact, Christmas has been oversold. And when we feel that way about the snow and the fun and the food and the presents, it's very easy to get the nagging feeling that spreads beyond the festive cheer to the baby born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Tonight, uh, we dip into Hebrews 10. We're thinking about the very first Christmas, that moment in time when God came to earth when he took on a body as a baby 2,000 years ago. And Hebrews was written to a people who had a nagging suspicion that this first Christmas had been oversold. Not the food, the festivities, and the fun, but much more seriously, that Jesus had been oversold to them. They were disillusioned by Jesus. They were attempting to give up on him. And they were going to go back to an old way of living. And so the purpose of Hebrews 10 is to show them and us why this first Christmas, the news of the birth of our Savior, has not been oversold and is in fact the best news this world has ever heard. The issue in Hebrews 10 is all about how an unclean people can have access to a perfect God. For a brief moment at the beginning of time, God and humanity enjoyed a a perfect and close relationship. Then, because of human rebellion and sin, that relationship was uh, torn in tatters and and ruined. And, And now, humanity, because of our sin, we are cut off from God who is holy and um, unable to uh, look on sin. And ever since that terrible moment back in Genesis 3, humanity has been trying to find a way to get back into God's presence, back into where God is. We've tried all kinds of things as a human race. All kinds of efforts have been undertaken. But we'll see tonight that only the baby born in Bethlehem is the way back into God's presence. The big question for us tonight then is this, how can an unclean people draw near to a perfect God? And if you're taking notes, the first point is this, a tried and tested way that never works. A tried and tested way that never works. This is verses one to four. In the Old Testament, God's law describes a whole series of sacrifices and offerings that the people were to observe as they tried to gain access to God's presence. But look at verse one of Hebrews 10. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. When I was a kid, countdown to Christmas began back in, I think, mid-October. And um, because I was a kid, what I was looking forward to most about Christmas, I think, was really the, the presents. And for me, particularly, it was... Lego presents, 
Other options are available, of course. Um, but a good Christmas day meant that on Boxing Day, I would spend the whole day poring over um, assembly instructions for a Lego digger or a tractor or some truck or something. That was what I was looking forward to most. But of course, a small Lego digger is utterly useless when it comes to the real world. Uh, just this last week, on the road around the corner from us, there was a, a burst water pipe and there's flooding everywhere. And they had to close the road for a couple of days and they had to um, dig up tons and tons of soil and chop up um, rock hard tarmac and they had to, to refill it all. And uh, just imagine if I were to rock up uh, this last week with my little 10 inch Lego digger and offer to help. Well, of course, um, apart from wondering why a 38 year old was still playing with Lego, um, they would, of course, point out that it was useless. Plastic with an AA battery cannot move around tons of soil because a little digger is just a, a shadow of the reality. The reality is a big JCB digger. The Lego is the shadow. And that is something of what is going on here in verse 1 as the writer to the Hebrews talks about the Old Testament sacrificial law. It is a, a shadow that it achieves nothing that points to a reality that achieves everything. For now, you can see that the problem with the shadow, look at the end of verse one, the writer says, for this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have any guilt for their sins. The people of Israel used to gather at the temple in Jerusalem every year, thousands and thousands of them, because the temple was the one place on earth where God's presence could be found. They drew near to worship him, but they could not enter the temple because the the, the sacrifices, the animals being slaughtered were just a shadow. They, They didn't actually work. There was a relentless futility about the sacrifices, repeated endlessly, year after year, but unable to make the people perfect for a holy God. I gather one of the particular frustrations of being a parent of a young child is the speed with which they can ruin their clothes. So you know how it works. Come a new day, you you give your young child a new set of of freshly washed, clean clothes, and then over breakfast they spill food all down their front, and a new change comes out, and then on the way to whatever, they stomp through the mud and the puddles and splash dirt everywhere, a new change of clothes, and it goes on and on. And throughout the course of a day, you can go through three, four, five different changes of clothes. In my case, when I was younger, I think probably six or seven. Um, But parents are often running back and forth changing clothes. Of course, it's wonderful that washing machines and stain removers work wonders, but there's a certain futility, isn't there? Day after day, changing clothes again and again and again. And it's possible to think that the problem here in Hebrews 10 is a bit like the parent's problem with a young child. Uh, the wash machine and the stain remover, they do a great job, but the problem is the child gets the clothes dirty again very quickly. And so you imagine an Israelite coming to the temple to offer a sacrifice. At that point in time, after it's offered, they, they're clean for an hour a day until they sin again, and then they're, they're dirty and stay and have to come back again and again and again forever. But the problem here in Hebrews 10, it's much worse than that. Look at verse three. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
You see, the problem here is that every sacrifice, every animal slaughtered was unable to take away sin at all. It's more like a parent running to uh, the wardrobe for a new set of clothes and opening up the doors and discovering to their horror that every single pair of fresh clothes in there has actually as stained as it ever was from the previous day, that the washing has done nothing, and all they can do is dress their children in, in stains from the previous day, in fact, from a, a previous lifetime, because no washing can remove uh, the dirt. And so if the big question is, how can unclean people draw near to a perfect God, here is a tried and tested way that that never works. The way of animal sacrifice, of religious endeavor. And yet it seems that the readers of this letter, Christians, were somehow being tempted to go back to this tried and tested way that, that never works. They were, they were tempted to move away from Jesus, the reality, back to a shadow that they knew was, was only a Lego model, if you like, compared to Jesus. And I think the reason why is because they had a guilty conscience and they were grappling with what to do with their guilt. I mentioned over the summer an English rugby player called Matt Stevens who tested positive for cocaine. It was a huge shock for his club and for his family. He was banned from the game for a number of years. And yet, in an interview sometime later, as as he looked back over what had happened, he said something, I think, that was remarkable. He said that even though it was terrible news for him and for his career that he was testing positive, he said, actually, it was a moment of tremendous relief because this huge problem was there in his life and the guilt of it was, was getting to him. He was overwhelmed by his guilt And to be caught and for it to be exposed at least was some relief for him. Think of King David in the Bible after his affair with Bathsheba. In his own words in Psalm 32, he says, My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer, as he labored under his guilt over sexual sin. If we've ever tried living with guilt, and we all have, We know how relentless, how crushing it is. It taints everything. We cannot stand ourselves. We cannot uh, be confident of what other people think. Uh, We worry about what God thinks of us. It, It eats away at us. And so for those of us who are aware of the guilt of our sin, there's something appealing about the very tangible nature of Old Testament sacrifices. It is visible and immediate and it feels real. Just imagine the scene on one of the greatest days of the Jewish calendar, the the Day of Atonement. The the nation would gather thousands and thousands of people and at the center of this day were were two goats. And as you watched on, you'd see the two goats brought to the center and then one of them before your eyes was slaughtered. And the blood of that goat was taken into the the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and sprinkled around to cleanse the most holy of places. The other goat, the scapegoat, as he watched on, the priest would come and lay his hands on the goat, symbolically placing the sins of the nation onto this goat. And then the goat was taken away into the desert to die. And the sights, the sounds, the smells of the sacrifice, the the extremely visible, real, tangible events taking place in front of you 
felt like it was doing something. It was achieving some, it was dealing with your guilt. It was fixing a problem that you were carrying around, thinking, well, at least I can walk away from this moment, a different person, free of my guilt. That's what the Hebrews were thinking. But the writer says to them, it's a tried and tested way that never worked. Even the worshipers back in the Old Testament tried it. They gathered near, and yet at the end of verse 2, their guilt was not taken away. Their guilt remained. Uh, The sacrifices achieved nothing. And so the writer would say to the Hebrews and to us, I understand how hard guilt can be, but, but don't go back to the way of the Old Testament sacrifices. It's a tried and tested way. It doesn't work. Well, what about us here tonight? If I can, may I ask, what are we doing with our guilt over sin before a holy God? Uh, Many of us at times will try to, to deny our guilt. I've done nothing wrong, but like a child who tries to push a beach ball under the water in a swimming pool, so our guilt always reappears, no matter how deep we try to bury it. And if not in this life, in the life to come, when we stand before the judge, who knows every thought and deed, then all will be laid bare. We could try to downplay our guilt. We could blame our circumstances, our, how tired we were. It's been a long week. We could uh, try distracting ourselves from our guilt. Over the Christmas period, one of the big drivers for excesses, uh, trying to escape with food or drink and pleasure, part of the driver is that we just want to forget how bad our life is, including our guilt. But I think the most common method of dealing with guilt that many of us here in the room will have fallen into is the tried and tested method of Hebrews 10 that never works. Uh, Not through actually sacrificing a goat, but through some attempt to compensate for our wrongdoing. The husband who has an affair tries to compensate with extravagant gifts for his wife. The parent who loses their temper with their children then goes to the office and tries extra hard to be friendly with their colleagues. One of the reasons why people often give money to charity is because they are burdened by guilt in this part of their life and they think, if I can do a good thing over here, it'll somehow compensate. And when it comes to God, it's easy to slip into a compensation mentality. We give into an addiction Perhaps it's pornography. We feel terrible about it. And then we want to do something to compensate, to fix what we've done. We think, well, I'll have an extra choir time, or I'll, I'll be extra kind to a person that I should be kind to, or I'll, I'll give up something or do something extra to make up for it. Some of us slip into serving at church, um, committing ourselves to doing lots of things, being busy as Christians, because part of what's driving us is our burden of guilt and we're trying to find some way to compensate for it. But to think this way is simply a variation of the tried and tested way that never works. Guilt remains and we cannot draw close to God. Well, that's the shadow. Let's look at the reality. 
How can unclean people draw near to a perfect God? Well, our second and final point is this. A tried and tested way that never fails. The writer of the Hebrews now takes us back to that moment when the son came into the world and took on human flesh. And he tells us what we would have heard if we had been there at that point in time. And so verse five. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. The words of the Christ. And I think we'll find here tonight one of the greatest insights in all of Scripture into why God took on flesh. The quote is from Psalm 40. And in Psalm 40, it's one of those moments in the Old Testament when it's very clear that they knew all along, God's people, that the Old Testament sacrifices were never enough to bring people into God's presence. It's very clear from Psalm 40 that um, there's a limitation to Old Testament sacrifices. What God really wanted from his people was, was not sacrifices, not offerings. What he wanted from, in the context of the psalm is he wanted the people who would obey him. He would do God's will perfectly all the time. It's like a husband who cheats on his wife and then uh, his affair is exposed and he then buys her an expensive necklace thinking that somehow the necklace would compensate for the affair. But then he does it again and again and again and again, each time buying an expensive necklace. And you think... Is, is that really the kind of relationship the wife was, was longing for when they got married? She doesn't want an unfaithful husband who is constantly unfaithful and a, and a stack of expensive necklaces. What she longs for is simply a, a faithful husband. And so too God when it comes to his people. The kind of relationship God wants with his people is a relationship of utter unyielding faithfulness. He doesn't want a load of expensive sacrifices. They don't do anything. He wants the people's hearts. Of course, the big problem is that there hasn't been a single person in the course of human history who has done the will of God, who's obeyed him perfectly until the Son took on flesh and came into the world. It's as if the Father said to the Son, would you be willing to lay aside your glory and to go down to the earth and to clothe yourself in frail humanity in order that you might be able to experience all the pain and suffering of living in a broken world and so that you might be exposed to the temptations that come from being a human, having a body? And then would you be willing at every point of temptation to do the right thing? to live a perfect life, to never envy, never be proud, never lust, never gossip, never slander. And more than that, to love God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. And then more than that, would you be willing to be obedient at the most costly point, which was to go and die on a cross 
and experienced the most agonizing death that's ever occurred in the course of human history as he died under the full weight of God's wrath at the sin of the world. And the son said, here I am. I have come to do your will. Many of you will know that uh, we've got a dog. I think she's great. Uh, You might hear me talking about her and you might hear me talk about how uh, clever she is and how well-trained she is. If you got to know her, you'd know that that was a kind of um, a not well-founded boast. Um, but as much as I like our dog, she cannot obey God. She cannot say no to lust. She cannot say no to envy or slander or gossip or pride. She cannot love God with all her heart, soul, strength, and mind. And of course, no animal can. And that is why animal sacrifices are like cheap necklaces when the problem is a broken relationship. They can never make up for what we've done. But when the son took on a body and then lived a perfect life, his sacrifice is different because on the cross, his life of perfect obedience was credited to our account. And our life of constant rebellion was credited to his account. And so, verse 10, and by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And so what do we do with our guilt? What about my self-centeredness? What about my lust or my temper? What about my tendency to grumble or gossip or self-pity? What about the arguments with my wife, my lazy parenting or my grumpiness with parents? Those are the the kind of easy things to talk about in public, but what about the, the harder things that we, we almost never say and yet many here tonight will struggle with? What do we do with our guilt? Well, verse 10 says, we have been made holy. It's as if we have turned up at the king's palace dressed in rags, stained in filthy from a lifetime of disobedience, reeking of guilt that we cannot take away. And then the son steps out of the palace dressed in his perfect gleaming robes of obedience. And he willingly, gladly takes off his robes and he hands it to us and removes our rags from us. And as we're dressed in his robes, So we're welcomed in to the king's palace once and for all and forever. And that is what happens the moment a person puts their trust in Christ and his death on the cross for them. We become holy. Every single action in the past, every single deed in the future, even the sins that we cannot even mention to another person, and even the sins in the future we cannot imagine, yet we will commit. All of those sins are exchanged with Christ, and we receive a lifetime of obedience back. 
for many, Christmas Day is a busy day. We, we rush around from one thing to the next. We sort out presents and we visit relatives and there's cooking to be done and washing up to be done. But eventually there's a moment when we sit down on the sofa and we go, ah. And that moment comes when the work is done. If you notice just beyond our reading, verses 11 and 12, the writer of the Hebrews contrasts the Old Testament priests who are constantly running around day after day overseeing more and more sacrifices because their work is never done. There's never enough sacrifices. But then verse 12, Christ, our great high priest, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. Then he sat down at the right hand of God. No more sacrifices needed. Perfect cleansing has taken place. And so, how can unclean people draw near to a perfect God? Here is a tried and tested way that never fails. The one perfect life, the Lord Jesus, given to take our lifetime of disobedience. And so the writer to the Hebrews would say to us tonight, don't go back. Don't go back to old ways of trying to deal with our guilt. We don't need to deny it or downplay it or seek distractions from it or even try to compensate for it. Instead, draw near to God. Draw near by acknowledging that we do have a sin problem, that we do have guilt. Draw near by trusting in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus in our place. Draw near by continuing to believe our access to God second by second is secured only always forever by that one sacrifice of Jesus. There are many things about Christmas that are oversold, but the news about God coming into our world, taking on a body as a baby born in Bethlehem on that first Christmas to say that this is the best news that our sinful and broken world has ever heard, well, that is no exaggeration. Through Christ, our access to God is a spiritual reality now, but one day, it'll be face-to-face and forever. And on that day, our greatest danger will not be disappointment, but rather wonder that we didn't look forward to it more. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you tonight that your son said, here I am. I have come to do your will. Father, it is almost beyond belief that the Son would be willing to take on a body, willing to experience suffering and temptation and to experience death for us. Father, please help us to not go back to tried and tested ways that never work, but help us rather to draw near by trusting in the perfect way, your son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.